What should immigration policy look like after the pandemic? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Dan Griswold and Sabine L. Chidiak. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dan Griswold and Sabine L. Chidiak. Dan is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and co-director of its Trade and Immigration Project. He is a nationally recognized expert on trade and immigration policy. He has authored numerous studies, testified before congressional committees, commented for CNBC, C-SPAN, and other TV and radio outlets, and written articles for the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and other publications. Sabine is the Educational Programs Manager at the Institute for Liberal Studies in Ottawa, Ontario. She holds a BA in Political Science from the University of Toronto and an MA in Political Science from the University of Western Ontario. After graduating, she went on to advise Canadian federal ministers on policy issues relating to citizenship and immigration for over four years and continues to write and speak about civil society and immigration policy today. Her work has been published by organizations such as the Mercatus Centre, the Institute for Research on Public Policy, Adam Smith Works, and the online Library of Liberty. She's also the producer of The Curious Task. Among other things these two have individually authored, they co-authored a policy brief for the Mercatus Center that's titled by its recommendation, Deepen U.S.-Canada Ties with a Post-COVID-19 Agreement for the Free Movement of People. Sabine, Dan, welcome to The Curious Task. Glad to be with you. Thanks, Alex. So, Sabine and Dan, our question today is, what should immigration policy look like after the pandemic? I'd like to start with where we're at today and where we were at before, before we look into the future. So I'm just going to pick a place to start. So I, I just like to say it feels like such a long time, especially as we record this in March of 2021, since we've had the freedom to travel ourselves even around the world and think about people going across borders. Um, and of course, many are looking forward to a return to the status quo that was before the pandemic. And of course, as far as the status quo is concerned, relatively speaking, the relationship between the U.S. and Canada is known as quite good. Like off the top of their heads, people say, oh, yeah, you know, our neighbors to the south or north, depending where you are. Uh, so people say, yeah, that's a pretty good relationship. But ultimately, you both in this policy brief are calling for a return to uh, not only the status quo, but better than the pre-pandemic status quo. As a matter of fact, when it comes to the free movement of people, even before COVID-19 between the U.S. and Canada, you guys have said, and I quote, an exception to this deep integration, the relationship, has been the relative lack of freedom of citizens in each country to emigrate to the other to live and work permanently. So, uh, Dan, I'll start with you. Maybe just a, a high-level comment on something people might not used to be hearing, that there's actually a part of this U.S.-Canada relationship that is, in fact, not, not the tightest or warmest that people might think by stereotype. Right, exactly. So on trade and investment, that is about as open as to sovereign countries can be. Going back to the mid-1960s when we integrated our auto sectors, the U.S.-Canada trade agreement in 1989, and then of course NAFTA and now the USMCA. Uh, and, and so that's a tight relationship. And then the temporary movement of people is about as open as it can be between two nations. You don't need a visa to go across, pre-COVID, <laughs> you didn't need a visa to go across uh, the the border. And, and as a consequence, uh, I found one source, this number is hard to nail down, but there were approximately 400,000 people a day crossing the border uh, pre-COVID. But yes, when it comes to immigration, and I define immigration as, as moving from one country to another to permanently settle, 
the same restrictions that uh, make immigration more difficult from other countries applied to the US and Canada. And what Sabine and I are saying in this paper is, uh, why don't we cement this wonderful integrated relationship between neighbors with a more openness to permanent uh, immigration? And we outline all the ways we can achieve that. Sabine, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, just to add to what Dan was saying, um, you know, unfortunately, as good as an immigration relationship uh, exists between the two countries, it could always be improved and liberalized um, in, in ways that make it easier for the freedom of movement to exist between the two countries. And programs like the Temporary Foreign Worker Program or the, uh, you know, they're not really designed in a, in a way to gain permanent residency. And that's another problem, you know, that we address in the paper. Um, you know, the funny thing is that if you look at recent polls from Canadians, they're pretty, uh, like, we'll tell you that like eight out of 10 Canadians are really open to having a pathway to permanent residency for people like temporary foreign workers. And the Canadian government just like doesn't do anything about that. There, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for most temporary foreign worker, workers who come in from the United States to gain, uh, and, and other countries, of course, to gain permanent residency in Canada. So that's all. That's obviously an issue. You know, it, it occurs to me as far as making things easier for people to to move and live and work somewhere permanently. Uh, it's interesting to think about, and and it was very interesting to read the policy brief you guys uh, co-authored because to me uh, it didn't seem like. From what I know, you guys may know one of my other worlds is, is the business world and actually the, the tech sector. And a lot of people actually do do a lot of cross-border career moving in that sector. So, for instance, I know somebody that just relocated their entire family. They got a job at Microsoft or something. So off they were on a plane from Ottawa to Seattle. All, all the uh, right visas were lined up and now they're lining up a permanent residency. There are hoops to jump through, but but they're getting there. And, and actually, the reason why I'm saying that is not to say that it's easy. It's because I'm actually going to tie this to a critique that I've often heard, that it's often in certain sectors or certain people, for instance, at certain stages of their career or in certain industries that actually do have the privilege and an easier time to move around and get things done like that, uh, especially if you have people at Microsoft helping you relocate. But for, for it seems to me that what you guys say in the brief is that across the board for the average person perhaps wanting to make an individual decision to move somewhere and live and work permanently, uh, that's really the problem is we don't have the across the board sort of same rights blanket and privileges that uh, other people may be able to take advantage of. Um, Dan, is that impression correct, or am I taking the case a little too far? No, no, Alex, I think you've described it uh, well. And to t take the example of this person you know and Microsoft, you know, uh, we have more immigration restrictions than we should have in the United States, but we're still generally an open system. And again, all this pre-COVID, uh, pre, pre -COVID, I call it the on-ramp uh, to U.S. Uh, immigration. It often follows a pattern, right? They study at a U.S. Uh, institution with a, an, an F visa, and then uh, your friend probably came over on an H-1B visa for high-skilled workers, and that's a dual intent visa, so you can it's a temporary visa. It's called a non-immigrant visa. Uh, good for three years, renewable for three years. And then you can uh, simultaneously uh, apply for permanent residency, a green card. Uh, the, the problem with that is it's fairly narrow. Uh, you have to have a college degree. Uh, certain industries, uh, two-thirds of H-1B visas are in the computer and related fields, all of my, my Microsoft. What we're talking about is, uh, well, one, we don't have enough of those visas. They run out every year. The number has been more or less fixed for 30 years. And think how much the tech sector's changed then. But what we're, what we're arguing in this paper is, let, let's broaden that. It isn't just 
workers with a college degree in the in the tech sectors of the STEM uh, sectors, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Uh, it's the trades, uh, construction, uh, plumbing, electricians, uh, and also uh, in uh, the hospitality industry and other things like that. Let's broaden it so that Americans and Canadians can move across the border and settle if they want. It's in the benefit of both countries to have uh, hardworking uh, immigrants filling niches in the labor market. That makes us all more productive. It makes both our nations more prosperous. Right. And, and Sabine, just to tie on to exactly what, what Dan's saying, it seems like the current state of affairs, relatively speaking, I know there's lots of different categories, lots of different complications, but it seems like a lot of what's happening right now is, is governments, and I'm more familiar with the Canadian cases in this case, but I know governments get very much involved in planning and feeling like, okay, like this is the kind of sector we need. Maybe we should bring people in for this kind of industry. And clearly in your policy brief, just as Dan was saying, you guys are saying in in a way, this is about getting government out of the planning process and more into an allowance process, letting people under certain circumstances and, of course, within certain regulations, uh, choose to move if they wish, not letting the government, for instance, plan to say, OK, we need 6,000 oil workers in Alberta or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, first of all, there's a huge divide between uh, the way the government treats uh, high skilled workers, what they call high skilled workers uh, and low skilled workers in Canada. Um, if you're a higher skilled worker, it's really it's not that hard to get permanent residency. Um, it is very difficult in some cases, but in other cases, if you if you check a lot of boxes, you can get in through express entry uh, in six months. You can have permanent residency in Canada. Um, but when you're uh, when you start going lower skilled, as you go lower on that um, that the list of 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 um, of occupations that the government has decided on uh, is low skilled, it gets harder and harder to impossible um, to actually come uh, to Canada and live here permanently. So the onus is always on the business to prove to the government that they need that person and they couldn't find a Canadian. That's the whole idea. And every few years they have to go through the process again. They have to sort of beg the government to let them keep these people that are working for them temporarily. As if there's a lineup of Canadians outside the mushroom farm begging the farmer to let them in and pick mushrooms <laughs> for them. That doesn't right. exist. Right. They're looking for, it's very difficult to get a temporary foreign worker to come to Canada. The forms, the hoops you have to jump through, they're they're very difficult. Um, so if you're going through that route, um, you, it's because you really need those people to be picking those mushrooms on your farm because you it's not easy for them to find people so if that's if that's the problem that the government has that they're not looking to gain it's it's not that big of a problem because i think businesses know what they need uh, and that's often the point that governments forget when we're talking about um like them creating lists of of appropriate occupations and things like that or labor market impact assessments often these things are not done in consultation with gov with uh, business uh, it's just assumptions, perhaps by economists or government officials, um, that they just put into practice through these, these regulations. And that's not very effective when you're trying to run a farm uh, or a factory. Right. Yeah. If I could just jump in, Sabine's exactly right. And Alex, to your your, your point, it, it's really an underlying theme of the paper is let's let the market drive these decisions, not government planning. You know, uh, we do have a special visa between the U.S. and Canada, the TN visa it's created uh, with, with NAFTA, and that has some advantages and it's worked, it's, it's served a, a purpose, but they that uh, specifies 63 specific professional categories. And again, it was written almost three decades ago, actually uh, just pre 
the internet and all that and think how much uh, that has changed. So rather than kind of top-down government deciding we need this many workers here or there, let, let the market determine that. We, we rely on market signals for so much else, I think to our benefit, both our freedom and our prosperity. It should be in the labor market too. You know, another thing we, we propose is doing away with, in the US it's called labor certification. You basically have to go out and prove that there isn't an American who can fill this job. Well, I, I imagine it's the same in Canada. US employers have a kind of built-in preference for hiring American workers, less paperwork, less cost. They're right there, ready to go. But in a lot of these fields, uh, both high-skilled and lower-skilled, there are not enough Americans to fill those positions. Yeah, here in the U.S., it isn't maybe so much mushrooms. It's it's lettuce. It's working on dairy farms, but also it's electricians, it's plumbers, it's construction workers. Uh, there aren't always American citizens available to fill those jobs. You don't need a lot of government paperwork. Just let uh, let the market work, and that's what we're saying here. And all the fears people have about low-skilled immigrants flooding the U.S. labor market and not assimilating, none of those apply to more Canadians uh, coming coming over to the United States. Right. And actually, just to drill a little deeper into what you said, Dan, because it's actually somewhere I want to go. So I think that's great that this this fear factor, if you will, there's there's multiple kinds of fears that we can talk about. Uh, actually, well, I mean, we, there's no way we'll cover everybody's fears in this episode. But I think I'd like to talk about a couple and you were just on to to one of them there. So, so one of the counters to this sort of line of thinking is people often throw your way and say, hey, um, and this is back to sort of the low skilled argument. If we allow uh, more freedom between borders, even just between the Canada and the United States, uh, you're going to have floods of low skilled people crowding out other low-skilled people in different kinds of jobs and things like that. So I just, I, I know you were kind of already on that train of thought, but I was thinking maybe to prompt you to continue it further based on that specific fear. It's it's first that low-skilled portion that people talk about. We can get to other things in a sec, but that one's very interesting to me. Well, well, one that that probably isn't going to be a factor in a U.S.-Canada agreement on free movement because Americans and Canadians are remarkably similar demographically, right? We're, we're free, advanced countries and educated uh, population. And, and Sabine and I specify this would apply to citizens in both countries. So one country can't become a conduit for nationals of another country to sort of gain the entry through through the back, back door. But even if there were some low-skilled workers, uh, I think there too, the, the market should determine it. The, and I, I imagine this is true in Canada too, the pool of native-born Americans who are willing and happy to fill these lower-skilled jobs has been shrinking. We're getting more educated. Uh, it, and, and demographically, uh, the share of Americans out in the workforce without a high school diploma has been shrinking inexorably, uh, and it's pretty small. And so there literally are not enough native-born Americans to fill. We call them essential workers. They basically make uh, whole sectors of the economy run, right? Hospitality, agriculture, construction. We need those workers. It isn't a huge part of the U.S.-Canada agreement, but it, but even without even with Mexico, I don't think that's a problem. Sabine, I was just going to toss another one of the quote-unquote fears your way to talk about, but I was just wondering before I do, is there anything you'd like to add to Dan's point about the sort of the low-skilled worker sort of fear part of the conversation? No, just that I agree with Dan that it's the same issue in Canada. Um, there's, I mean, so there's certain um, uh, industries in Canada, like the tourism industry, that rely heavily on uh, foreign workers. 
um, sometimes from the international student programs that Canada runs and other times just from cross-border uh, you know, young people looking for a job that they can't find something in the United States or other countries, they'll come to Canada uh, and do some hospitality in, in our tourist touristy uh, regions of the country. So it's definitely uh, something that affects Canada as well. And then continuing on then to another one of the fears, um, I guess this sort of applies more to the, the higher skilled workers or the maybe college graduates and up sort of discussion, which is this idea of, of, of the brain drain. So and this is actually something I think is often I don't want to presume too much, but I think more part of sort of a Canadian uh, talking point to some degree than Americans sometimes. Like, for instance, growing up in Canada myself, um, we've often heard about our neighbor to the south. It is a bigger economy, has more population, etc. You often hear like if such and such policy was implemented, the United States and all these big companies are basically just going to take all the university graduates away from Canada, that kind of thing, we- weaken the economy, whatever case it may be. There's this brain drain fear. And I know that fear exists in the States, but I was just thinking of talking about it from the Canadian perspective with you you as well just specifically because uh number one am i wrong about that because that's the impression i got growing up and even our education system this was talked about and, and number two what do you have to say to that brain drain it's it's, fun, it's a funny thing to think about when you're talking about a canada united states because we're so close right you, you don't really think about that fear but people really do have that um as an issue uh, that needs to be addressed and if you're talking from a canadian perspective um you know it'll be great to in my opinion it's great to open up the market to people who are experts and things that maybe we don't have a lot of uh, experts on in Canada from the United States to come in and help us help the, the Canadian economy grow in that way uh, by bringing this expert uh, you know education or experience that they have uh, to a business that really needs it for example uh, so if we can lure some Americans away to Canada that's great for us um, and in terms of the other way around uh, like losing all our uh, best and brightest in Canada to the United States um, there are more opportunities in the United States that uh, might draw people away. But if countries are so worried about that, then they can just make it easier for businesses to attract people in their own country uh, to do the jobs, perhaps by taking away, uh, you know, regulations or providing business driven incentives uh, to employees, like allowing for that to, to be a thing that businesses can provide. Um, so if they really care about keeping people uh, in their respective countries, then that's what, the way that they should do it. Um, but they don't even do that. <laughs> So before we even start discussing uh, who's going where and how many people we're going to lose, I mean, uh, shouldn't we be able to to have business incentivize people to stay um, in Canada or to go to the United States? I mean, that's even difficult. So. Dan, this sort of goes back to your point, too, about the businesses deciding versus the government, for instance. I think that also a lot of people have this idea that the, this idea of an educated person or an expert is sort of just interchangeable. Ah, well, they have a university degree. They're going somewhere. But in reality, if, if we do see changing around of, of population, people moving back and forth between the two countries, if we did have a more ideal scenario, I guess the assumption would be that, that they're going where their specific skill is needed and the businesses are deciding. Yeah, Alex, that's a tremendous point. I mean, shouldn't the, the ultimate aim of policy to allow Canadian citizens and American citizens to individually realize their full potential. For an American, that may be a career in Canada, a life in Canada, and vice vice versa. Rather than brain drain, I think we should think about it as brain circulation. You know, there's a, there's a growing literature about this. Third world countries are particularly concerned. They're losing their doctors and their engineers. But what the research has shown is that, well, one, we, we touch on remittances, you know, skilled workers go to another country, they do send money back, and that has a, uh, an economic advantage. They return to the home country and they bring the experience, you know, think of the extra value 
a, a high-skilled Canadian would have, say, having worked in Silicon Valley for five, five years and then coming back to Vancouver or Ontario, the, the experience, the connections uh, they, they bring with them. And then finally, and Sabine was hinting at this, the institutional competition. Uh, you know, we're all for competition among businesses, but I think it's healthy to have uh, countries and uh, uh, provinces and states competing with one another. If Canada is worried about losing high-skilled workers, they should be doing everything they can to make Canada an attractive place. And I should add, Canada is a very attractive place. The one thing I'll, uh, I'll add finally is, you know, if anything in recent years, the stories I've seen anecdotally have been about uh, high-skilled workers uh, being attracted to Canada as opposed to the United States because of our limitation on H-1B visas, because of some of the limitations the former Trump administration put on immigration. So I think it's as much to Canada's benefit. I, I don't think it's something to worry about. To me, it's, it's yet another feature of a more open movement of people is that you get the dynamism, the synergy, the brain circulation in the high-tech sector. So shifting gears a little bit, um, so the paper does state that recent implementation and talks surrounding new trade agreements between the U.S. and Canada, like the USMCA, provide the opportunity to open up this discussion that we're having with the people making policy. So as policy experts, both of you, uh, can you get a bit into why it is true that there's often a broader window of opportunity for change if one set of policies over here is being discussed, you know, then another one might be a little more viable or, or tenable. Like, you know, it's sort of easier to get it through that window. So Sabine, we'll start with you. Just, I mean, again, for those listening that, that aren't policy experts, haven't worked in this area, why is that the case? Some people might say, okay, big deal. You guys talked about free trade agreements. All of a sudden, we're talking to the people managing immigration. Why is that such an opportunity now? Well, total overhauls take a lot of time and immigrants don't have time. <laughs> Businesses need people uh, right away. So if you have an opportunity like the USMCA uh, or like some sort of other agreement that um, you can uh, start having those discussions in, you should grab that opportunity and push for a more open immigration through that. Uh, it's definitely, uh, you should consider it a gateway. Um, it's also a good way to argue that if you are open to making trade easier, why aren't you open to the best resource that these countries, these countries have, which are humans? As human beings. If, you're, if we're talking about trade, let's talk about uh, movement of people too. Uh, so it's a really good way to start that conversation and uh, convince more people. Uh, and we also don't want to overcomplicate things by continuously creating new streams and programs. Uh, so why not simplify it and let people come if they want to and apply for PR if it suits them? You know, like this is what we're trying to argue in the paper. Um, you know, I think just generally speaking, the Canadian immigration system is actually pretty great uh, as it is in terms of processes and all of that. Like the visa officers are really good. People on the ground are working really hard. They're very pro-immigration. They're trying to find ways to get people here. And the express entry system is very good in terms of identifying people and getting them into the country in as, as quickly as six months, as I was saying before. So we have those foundations already laid. Why not uh, use them uh, to change them, to make them uh, more accessible? and more open to immigration than they were before, rather than overhauling. Uh, it's, it's just easier politically speaking, um, and it's easier uh, for people like us who really care about this um, to work within that framework because uh, we can actually reach uh, policymakers in a way that makes it like, oh, here's a policy that I can just sort of plug in to what we're already doing, and that 
automatically makes things easier for people who are trying to cross the border, for example. Dan, over to you. Why is it easier uh, in your in your minds to, to have this type of conversation that we're having now if other policies that, that are even different but still within the same vein are, are kind of up, up for discussion? Or actually, I should say not up for discussion, have changed, right? There has been free trade agreement changes yes. and things like that. Well, it's building on success. You know, I think the U.S.-Canada commercial relationship has been one of the greatest successes in the world. I think we are, our two countries are a shining example to the rest of the world of what it means to be good neighbors <laughs> on a broad front, right? Just general rela- relations generally and how we cooperate with NORAD and NATO and all these other things, the, just the, the, the friendliness and good feeling between the two countries, uh, but, but the economic uh, integration, trade, investment. And we're just saying the movement of people is uh, is part of that, isn't it? You know, foreign investment, you have uh, company employees going back and forth. Trade is building relationships. A lot of that cross-border uh, movement of people is truck drivers and business people uh, going back and forth. So you're, you're, you're building uh, on that. It, it's interesting. I think Sabine would agree with this. While economically, trade and immigration are related, and the arguments are somewhat the same, right? Division of labor, and uh, Adam Smith uh, would would uh, approve of of both. Politically, they have a different feel. Right. And people who are totally on board on trade will say, "Well, I'm not quite sold on immigration." But we think uh, our, our two countries uh, it does provide an example because of all these. Uh, successes we've had in integrating otherwise. We do point out uh, to Alex, and maybe you're going to get to this, that, that there are some examples around the world of uh, uh, developed Western countries having free movement of people. In the European Union, they have the Shenzhen Agreement going back to the 1980s. Uh, yes, some people uh, are unhappy with some aspects of that, but generally it's been a success. That basically says uh, uh, within the European Union, now minus the United Kingdom, people can move uh, freely. And you haven't had a mass exodus of people from one country to another. And it's been largely economically driven. And it has benefited the countries uh, for all the reasons we've talked about that both have received the immigrants and have sent them because of remittances uh, and other things. Uh, Australia and New Zealand uh, for the past several decades uh, the Trans-Tasman uh, Agreement on, on the movement of people. And that's pretty much wide open. What we're advocating basically is something like that. It, it doesn't uh, confine it to uh, certain special professional specialties. It isn't about temporary immigration. It can be permanent. Somebody from New Zealand can move permanently to Australia and vice versa. That has worked very well. And that also contains something too that uh, we would very much endorse and that is um, mutual recognition of professional credentials. Uh, let's, let's allow people in professions to practice in the other country. We're both advanced uh, first world countries with high standards let's recognize that uh, for the benefit of both our peoples. It sounds like what you're also saying is that perhaps the trickier part is just to convince people that humans are part of the economic discussion, not just goods, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Right. yeah. Let's factor humans in there. Good point. Um, and actually, I think we're actually at about a good time to take a break. So we're going to do that right now before we move ahead. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Dan Griswold and Sabine Elchidiak today. Mm-hmm. 
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Elizabeth Aragona, Janet Bufton, and Scott Scheel. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Dan Griswold and Sabine Elchidiak. So I think the first half was great, uh, guys. We covered a lot of things about where things were at sort of before the pandemic and where you you, you think they, they should go. Uh, we talked about deepening the relationship between Canada and the United States and how that's been done in some areas, but should be done in this area too, which is immigration. Um, we've, we've talked about it and it's weaved through much of our conversation now, uh, but I'd like to drill a little further to it, into it because I still think even after all this conversation, people might be thinking you guys are talking about, you know, expanding a couple of visas here and there and things like that. So let me just ask point blank. Uh, let's specify once and for all, what is the alternative there? What do you truly mean by free movement of people? Again, like I said, there might be somebody sitting there going, you know, oh, you know, we're going to expand a couple of programs, call it a day. But again, you guys have said that free movement agreements would go beyond existing arrangements and allow people to pursue things that they want, regardless of category, regardless of income level, regardless of all this stuff. So let, let's round that part of the discussion off. Sabine, we'll start with you, and then we'll go to Dan. Dan and I are pretty clear in this uh, policy brief that we want an agreement that allows citizens of each country to live and work indefinitely in the other country, um, and allow those who want to stay to apply for permanent residency according to whatever rules have been established by each country. So um, we're, we're clearly stating that we're not talking about a small amount, like we're just going to increase it by uh, 10,000, like some arbitrary number that a bureaucrat has come up with. We're talking about whoever wants to move around can. Yeah, ex exactly right. And, and of course, the U.S. has its existing system and that applies to Canadians. They can apply for a green card like uh, people in other countries. That tends to be underutilized uh, for, for various reasons. But yeah, among the big differences we're talking about is not limiting it to higher skilled, college educated, and even these 63 categories in the TN visa, open it to, to workers generally. Uh, there are niches in the labor market that aren't just on the high end. They're on lower skilled uh, and, and middle you know, trades like electricians and plumbers and that sort of thing. We have a, a real shortage here, truck drivers, that, that, that sort of thing. So opening it up uh, for that, doing away with the numbers, the quotas, uh, those are, are overly restrictive. You know, one of the qualifications that is very important is uh, access to, to welfare programs. We think it's perfectly legitimate uh, to say that these immigrants cannot just plug in and get claim all the government uh, benefits. They should go to the other country to work and to be self-supporting, which immigrants typically do. That's why they don't immigrate for welfare benefits, they immigrate for opportunities, employment uh, opportunities, healthcare is a, is a special case. So there, there's no problem restricting access. We do that in the United States already, and I think that's perfectly uh, fine. You have to uh, be on a green card uh, for five years before you can claim uh, government benefits. You actually have your family uh, sign an affidavit saying they will support you and you won't become a government uh, charge. We think that's an important thing to build in, both for the immigrant immigrants' sake, to encourage them uh, to be gainfully employed, 
and self-sufficient, but also politically to assure taxpayers in both countries that immigration will be a net plus, not a net, net drain. And it is a net plus uh, under most conditions. I think that's actually a really important point you're bringing up, Dan, because I think a lot of people, um, even before they get to the kind of conversation we're having, which is opening things up further, many still have this idea in their head that, well, if we went further, it would just make the problem worse. And quote unquote, the problem in many people's heads is there's tons of people coming here. And as soon as they land off a boat or a plane or whatever it is, they plug into welfare. And that's why they're here. But as you said, the, it's a lot more complicated than that. There's already, as we said, tons of visas in different categories you can go to each country under. But putting that aside, there's, as you said, already restrictions and things like that in play anyway. So this isn't as radical of an idea as, as we they might be some people might be thinking, as you said, there's already different kinds of restrictions and things like that. So, so Sabine, I know you, you spent a lot of time not only researching this, but also in 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 the government actually uh, dealing on, with these types of issues directly. I think the same is true for Canada, right? I mean, uh, the immigration system, as you said, is, is largely quite good, but I, I don't think there's a piece of paper anywhere that says, come one, come all, and register for a bunch of welfare as soon as you get here, right? No, certainly not. And it, there's actually precedent in Canada, and we talk about this uh, Dan, I talked about this in the policy brief that we, we put together here. Uh, there's precedent for dealing with such issues uh, in the Canadian context. One of, I think, the most ingenious uh, programs that we have in Canada is called the Super Visa. Um, the Canadian Super Visa allows parents and grandparents to visit their children and grandchildren for up to two years. Uh, and it, it provides them with multiple entries for up to 10 years, which is really nice. Um, and in order to be eligible for this, uh, the child or grandchild, because obviously the biggest issue for people would be like, oh, they're older people, they're going to be a drain on our on our healthcare system. Uh, we have socialized health care in Canada, so um, they can that might be, become a problem if they're staying for that long. So uh, what they've done is in order to be eligible, the Canadian child or grandchild has to sign a piece of paper promising to financially support the parent or grandparent for the length of their visit. Um, and the child or the grandchild has to show proof that they've purchased medical insurance from a Canadian insurance provider um, with at least $100,000 in coverage. So this ensures that anyone entering the country under the program is not going to have to rely on social assistance while residing in Canada temporarily. And I think that that's an interesting thing that we can throw out there and say, uh, we've, we've thought about these things. It's not the first time we've worried about these issues and we've found solutions. So it's not impossible to think about outside the box like that. Another example in the Canadian context is the, uh, the PSR, the Private Sponsorship of Refugees. Uh, Canada limits uh, the need for social services for refugees and humanitarian streams of immigration uh, through that program um, by allowing Canadians to uh, financially take care of those refugees when they come to Canada, both emotionally and financially. So it's not like we've never thought about these things. We have. We have interesting solutions to them. And if we try, we can come up with more <laughs> uh, things that will uh, help us allow people. So the, the, it's not that the uh, options are not bring people in and let them uh, live off welfare immediately or not bring people in. There's a million options in between. Uh, we just have to explore those options. And we shouldn't turn off the tap for immigration just because we're worried about this one aspect, uh, which is you know, affecting the welfare system because we do have solutions and we can be creative in that way. And I will say also, just to add to what we were talking about earlier, um, that we're, we're talking about um, any any citizen of the, each country to live and work definitely in the other country. Of course, when you're applying for permanent residency, Dan and I are also saying, oh, like we want to put an emphasis on the fact that we're that these things have, there's, there's rules that each country has. For example, they're still going to do criminality checks. 
if you want to stay permanently. They're still going to do medical checks if you're if you want to stay permanently. So it's not um, we're not going to we're not looking to take away those provisions. I think we think they're useful. I think Dan will agree with that that they're useful, uh, and we're not taking that away. So people don't have to worry about that either. Let me just. Uh... Second, second, something Sabine said a, a while back. I just want to go on record. I'm a great admirer of the Canadian immigration system, and Sabine is right. Uh, while there are some tweaks uh, that she'd like to have of the Canadian system, it's generally working well for the benefit of of Canadians. You know, I've I've written favorably of the Canadian and the Australian immigration systems uh, in the past. If you look at uh, family migration as a share of the population. It's pretty similar between the United States and Canada, but employment-based immigration to Canada is eight or nine times what it is to the United States as a share of the population. So Canadian uh, leaders, and I think both uh, conservative and liberal, have generally understood uh, that uh, workers coming into Canada benefit uh, the country. I think that is a less of a reality and more of a contentious political point here in the United States. I'd like to see us uh, liberalize our system so that our rates of net immigration uh, more closely resemble those of Canada and Australia. And they're two advanced uh, Western countries that seem to be doing pretty well, uh, both socially and economically. Uh, they're setting a good example for us here in the United States. Yeah, and actually the, the Minister of Immigration, we, we talk about this a little bit in the brief, that the Minister of Immigration in Canada has put forth an immigration levels plan um, in 2020 that wants to bring in 1.2 million immigrants uh, because of the economic shortfall that, that's happened uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, um, you know, the immigration critic from the Conservative Party of Canada wasn't, wasn't uh, necessarily opposed to the number. It, it didn't scare them that it was like 1.2 million. Oh my gosh, that's so many people. They were just worried about how we're gonna do it with the rapid testing of COVID-19 um, and how we're going to integrate newcomers into Canada. Like, are there enough integration programs? Like, are you prepared to bring these people in? So uh, I think that that's actually really encouraging that uh, proposals like the one Dan and I are, are putting forth uh, perhaps won't be completely shut down by a, a conservative or right-leaning uh, party in Canada because uh, they're open, like we are open to immigration on both sides of the aisle here, which is nice. Uh, there's just like the, there's just smaller um, issues. And uh, my hope is that uh, with this new administration, the United States will become more open to that as well. For the last sort of third of our conversation, if you will, I do want to talk about more future looking things in terms of like the, the res where things could go and the, and the results of the kinds of policies you're talking about. Uh, Dan, you guys talk about in the policy brief that ultimately free movement of, of people uh, in the ways we've been talking about here would also provide uh, an institutional check on bad government policies by enabling people to vote with their feet, if you will. I, I, I found that very interesting, right? Because we spent a lot of time and of course, the paper talks about uh, spends a lot of time on talking about things such as, of course, it's very important to people's personal liberty and and, and, and business health and, and overall economic health. But when it comes to the public policy side, I, I thought this was a very interesting point as well. People can vote with their feet sort of on, on government overall. Yes. Uh, yeah. And voting with your feet may not be a phrase that everybody's familiar with, but it's uh, the concept that uh, people who are unhappy with their condition, uh, yes, you can try to change it within through politics or whatever, but one option is to pick up and move. Uh, it can be from one province to another, uh, you know, from Quebec to Alberta or something like that, but, it from, but from one nation to another. Uh, 
And actually, this has been an important part of enhancing human freedom. Uh, over the years, uh, George Mason law professor Ilya Soman uh, has just uh, written uh, a book on that subject. I reviewed it on the Mercatus website. You can you can find it. it's a terrific contribution to the to the literature. But yes, so uh, both the United States and Canada are developed market democracies uh, to much to our benefit. But as as we're in the business of pointing out, <laughs> there's room for improvement uh, in a number of areas. And a freer movement of people is one more incentive to improve. If Canada or the United States start losing some of their high-tech workers to the other country because conditions are better. Uh, that's an incentive for the country to re-examine its policies and create a more dynamic, friendly environment uh, for uh, workers. Also related, smoothing the business cycle. Uh, you know, the U.S. and Canada are tied together pretty closely, uh, but there's reasons why the cycle, can, both uh, macroeconomic policies, you can have a persistently higher unemployment rate in Canada than the United States or vice versa. Uh, the oil patch in Alberta, the oil sands patch. Uh, let's say it's boom times and you need oil workers. Uh, free movement would enable more U.S. workers to go there and realize the opportunities there. Or vice versa, if you have a bust there, those workers can find employment in Texas and other places uh, like that. So you put this all together and it's just a way of uh, both incentivizing governments to get their policies right and also smoothing out the business cycles that can affect certain people in certain places very harshly. And the freedom of movement, uh, both within the country and to another country, can enhance uh, human liberty and human well-being. And we, we actually have had Ilya Soman on the, on the podcast. I encourage people to check out that and also uh, his, his books on, and writings on this topic. But um, uh, one thing that him and others, uh, Dan, do talk about in their writings and put forward as an argument for the people voting with their feet discussion is that if, if someone's against that, as far as between two countries are concerned, they should consider how people, especially within the United States, uh, it's, it's almost part of the culture to vote with your feet between states. Exactly. That is, we just take it for granted here in the United States that if, if uh, things are bad in the Midwest, you can move uh, to Texas or somewhere else where there's more opportunity. We're seeing uh, something of an outflow of people from California. Yes, yes. Uh, for various reasons. But one is, I would say, uh, overregulation, overtaxation. Uh, and that's providing an institutional check. You're seeing it from New York uh, State as well. So, yes, uh, and, and Ilya makes a, a good argument that if you think immigration is bad, there's no reason why you wouldn't argue that people shouldn't be free to leave California and move to Texas or somewhere else. And yet we all see it's, it's part of our fabric of uh, freedom here in the United States, but also it's economically very good to smooth business cycles, to provide an institutional check. And Sabine and I are just arguing uh, all those arguments would apply to free movement of people between the United States and Canada. But it's true, right? Right now we're seeing, as you said, massive outflows of people from these old, um, if you will, like beehives of productivity and uh, and and cultures for certain industries are, are more spreading out now based on, on the incentives at play. So, so it seems to work in the micro for sure, at least in between states and in Canada in between provinces. So I guess the idea is if it works there, it works between countries as well. So I'd like to get each of your thoughts on how uh, people like us, I mean, I'm in agreement with what you guys are saying. That's my personal bias. Um, 
could go about promoting these ideas to others. I mean, you guys clearly did a very important thing in this area. You actually worked on a, a, a very well cited and thought through policy brief, which we will link in our episode notes. Everyone listening, you should go check it out. Um, but but other than that, what do we do? Keep fighting the good fight, talking to people, spreading ideas. Um, I know there's people are in different roles if they're either at a think tank or, or just people interested in this topic, that there's different things they can do. Uh, but maybe Sabine, we'll, we'll start with you and then we'll, we'll come back to Dan. But just overall, some recommendations on how people should think like this and and depending on what role they're in, the kinds of things they should be doing to move this ball forward if, if they believe in, in what we're discussing today? Yeah, it's a really good question. I I firmly believe that, um, you know, uh, the best way to promote these kinds of policies is twofold. First, to get information out there so people can read and hear about all types of immigration and how they're beneficial to society and debunking these myths that people might have uh, or believe about immigration. Uh, and the second is just writing papers like the one that we did that solve the practical policy problems facing politicians, uh, policymakers, uh, especially at times like this when government officials are looking for ways to boost the economy through immigration. We're hearing that more and more during this pandemic. Uh, so putting out practical ideas that can they can just sort of um, just put into their uh, policy proposals, uh, they can easily just plug it in. I think that's really important too. I mean, like Dan and I have a solution. You could just plug into your next bilateral meeting. Here it is. Take it and run with it. You know, so I think those are two really important ways to promote these ideas. Yeah, we, we wouldn't be in this business if we didn't know the power of ideas and truth and facts uh, to, to influence public opinion. There's a lot of myths and bad ideas out there about a lot of things, uh, but in particular about immigration. It's just a, an emotional issue. And we think just laying out logically, we have a lot of experience in both our countries with the immigrants and their impact. And it is by any objective standard, overwhelmingly positive uh, for, for both countries. So we have that broad uh, message, but also specific proposals. You know, I think it was Milton Friedman who said change comes about when both you have uh, changing circumstances, but you also have ideas on the shelf ready to go. Well, here's an on-the-shelf idea. Uh, and I'm hoping that I'm, I'm, I like to be an optimist, uh, not rose-colored glasses, but I like to see the glass at least half full. And things couldn't get much worse in terms of the immigration uh, situation uh, recently here in the United States, both with COVID uh, requiring some legitimate rethinking of the movement of people, but also uh, some taking advantage of that. And you saw that with the previous Trump administration where they shut down all sorts of immigration that posed no threat uh, to public health or public uh, safety. And I'm hopeful with the Biden administration, while uh, I question uh, large parts of their agenda on taxes and other things, uh, they've been sounding more open and friendly uh, towards uh, immigration. Uh, they made some sweeping, uh, broad, comprehensive immigration proposals, but also some targeted, uh, specific proposals. And I think Sabine and I are hoping with, uh, with some reason uh, that this proposal uh, can get into the mix and be part of the conversations between uh, the United States and Canada uh, in the days and months ahead. It sounds like as far as the future is concerned with this change of administration and so on, just to round off that point, you're, you're feeling more optimistic about the political climate in the United States on this issue. I, I, I am sort of uh, guardedly op optimistic. Uh, President Biden, uh, actually, when he was a candidate, some, uh, put out some very specific proposals on immigration. 
and most of them were in a positive, more pro-immigration uh, direction. Of course, uh, the realities are we have a uh, closely divided Congress, uh, and the parties are kind of divided within each uh, within themselves. And so uh, it's always fraught here in the American system, which is designed to make uh, change uh, difficult and requiring compromises uh, along the way. So we'll we'll have to see. There's some specific proposals for legalizing what we call the dreamers. Uh, those are uh, illegal immigrants who came here as minors. They didn't break the law. They were just coming with their parents. Uh, this is for many of them. This is the only country they've ever known. They're assimilated. Uh, they speak English fluently. Uh, by definition, they're in school or they're serving in the military or they're employed. There's over a million of them that fit that definition. We should legalize them tomorrow. Uh, and uh, expanding uh, lower skilled immigration opportunities and that sort of thing. Uh, President Biden has, has two, two problems. One is uh, a lot of Republicans have, I would say, uh, drank the Kool-Aid of President Trump and just have a kind of reflexive anti-immigration approach and try to exploit it for everything they can. But he also has some issues on his progressive side and organized labor, uh, I think wrongly is skeptical about liberalizing uh, H-1B and other temporary immigrant programs because they think they compete with existing workers when in fact they don't, they complement existing workers and actually create opportunities for Americans. So, uh, and, and then one final thing is public opinion. You know, Gallup has been asking Americans their attitude towards immigration and I won't go into the numbers on our limited time here, but uh, the support of the American public for uh, more immigration to the United States is at something of a historic high three quarters of Americans have a generally favorable view towards immigration. So uh, while Americans may not be writing letters to their congressmen saying liberalize immigration, I think the public attitude is more open to leadership from the president, from leaders in Congress uh, to open up our system. So I'm guardedly optimistic that we can get something good done if there's the right leadership. Sabine, same question over to you. Uh, what's your overall attitude for the future? I I mean, policy doesn't stick unless people really believe in it, right? So um, I think what Dan is saying is, is very important that people are supportive of immigration. That's really important. It isn't just like having government or, or politicians doing things. It's having the belief of people. And in Canada, on the Canadian side, uh, regarding the future, you know, I, I, I'm, I've been worried, and I, I've talked about this in a, in a past podcast that I recorded with you, Alex, about uh, I'm, I'm always worried about growing xenophobia in Canada because uh, the pandemic is seen as something that has come in from the outside, has brought been brought here by people from outside the country. And I, I worry about that turning into a fear of outsiders that will translate into, uh, you know, dropping numbers of support of immigration. Uh, I also worry that um, the Trudeau government will use that as a way to uh, not uh, sort of feed into that and uh, use it in a, way to, in a way to sort of change regulations and policies uh, in that vein. Uh, but I am, um, I'm not too, too worried about it because I think that the economic strain <laughs> that Canada is going through due to the pandemic uh, is going to sort of force our hand into finding new uh, ways to bring immigrants to Canada because I think we're realizing pretty quickly, as the immigration minister has been saying subtly um, recently, that we're going to have to really get serious about bringing people to Canada if we're going to uh, recover economically from this pandemic. So the fact that that's an issue is making me hopeful that we are still going to be open. Um, and, and you know, 
Canada, I know that people get tired of hearing this, but Canada really is an open country to immigrants, you know, uh, people are generally favorable of immigration in Canada. And I do hope that that continues, and that I'm wrong about that. So we'll see. That brings us right to the time where we're going to move into our formal wrap up here. So both of you, let me say we, we've talked about a lot. I think the conversation was great. So let's try and put a, a finer point on our exploration of the question today, bring everything full circle. And let me ask, what do you both ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here? on what immigration policy should look like after the pandemic. Dan, we'll start with you. Yes. Uh, well, I think they would have gotten a flavor here that we're broadly supportive of immigration. It has been a great blessing to both Canada and the United States. It's a, it's an advantage we have in the world uh, against uh, both our economic uh, co countries uh, competing economically, but also geostrategically. Uh, immigration is good for, for both our, our countries in building our economies and building ties uh, to the rest of the, the world. Getting more specific, uh, I think, uh, you know, Canada is ahead of the United States in this, but here in the United States, we need more opportunities for legal immigration. We need to expand high-skilled visas, but also low-skilled opportunities, some of it temporary, some of it permanent. That's the best answer to illegal immigration here in the United States, provide uh, legal channels for low-skilled immigrants, and then they won't come in uh, Ill illegally. Specific things like legalizing the dreamers. Um, but I think one of the strengths of our proposal for U.S.-Canada free movement agreement is it's it's realizable. It's, it's low-hanging fruit. Uh, sure, maybe the climate isn't right for comprehensive immigration reform, but here's a specific proposal between both our chief commercial partners, right? For both countries, the other one is the chief commercial uh, partner. Uh, here's a chance to solidify that relationship. Low to zero risk for both countries, a tremendous upside. Let's do it in the context of all the success we've had over the last 50 years and recently uh, renegotiating NAFTA. Uh, let's cement that relationship with an agreement on free movement of people between the United States and Canada. Sabine, final thoughts? Yeah, I totally agree with everything Dan just said. And I'm just excited for the opportunities uh, that can come out of this situation that we're in. Um, you know, positive opportunities for immigration. Uh, and I, I hope that our policy is part of that conversation going forward. Dan Griswold, Sabine Elchidiak, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. Both of you again. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.